Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the vision that you've given to this church. And Father, I pray that you speak to each one of us this morning in whatever context that is, that you give us a word in season for where we are right here and now. Amen. Good. So as Ben's um, said, I'm here to talk to you about being far-reaching, and that's part of the, the focus that we have for the church for this year. And if you weren't here in February, Paul preached a fantastic message in February talking about why we need to be far-reaching. And that is definitely well worth going back and listening to, particularly if you haven't been here for that period of time, because he talks about why we need to go and reach the lost, and talks about a passage in Luke 14 where Jesus tells a story about people being invited to the feast and how some people chose to come and others didn't. But what he said to his, to um, what the master said to the servants was to go out into the highways and byways or the country roads and the motorways or wherever it happens to be, whatever your interpretation is of that, and compel people to come to the feast so that my house would be full. Because that's God's heart. God wants us to be a house that is full, full of life, full of vitality, and full of people. Full of people who are saved, who come to know Jesus. And that's what we're talking about when we're being far-reaching. Is actually we reach out as far as the eye can see to those who don't yet know God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now as I say, Paul's already preached a message on why we should do that. I want to talk a little bit this morning about how we can do that. And that's both as a church and as individuals. And some of this that we're going to talk about this morning is about changing what we do. Some of it is about changing the way that we think about being far-reaching and about reaching people who don't yet know Jesus. But the good news is that God is not reliant on my ability to reach other people. God is not reliant on your ability to reach other people. He doesn't focus on your skill set. He doesn't focus on your competence. He focuses on your willingness to obey and step out and do what needs to be done in that moment in time. The Bible's got a recurring theme. There's quite a few recurring themes um, in the Bible, actually. But the Bible's got a recurring theme of God taking something relatively small and insignificant and magnifying it to make a huge difference to more people than the person involved originally thought possible. And we see that all the way through the Bible. There's a story of Joseph, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt, and then he finds himself in a situation where he's in prison, and he's put in a conversation with Pharaoh, or the king of Egypt at that time. And he obediently just says what God put into his mind to say to Pharaoh. When he had that conversation, he said those sentences, he didn't know the impact that that was going to have. But what God brought out of it was saving an entire nation of Egypt and Israel from famine. Esther stood before a king and actually just invited him to dinner. He was a husband as well, so it's a little bit of a weird context. But uh, but she invited him to dinner, didn't know at the time what that was going to result in. But it resulted in God saving an entire nation from genocide. Moses stood before a king and said, let God's people go. At that moment, whether he believed that was going to happen or not, we don't actually know. But we know that God used him to bring salvation for an entire nation out of that process. Gideon obediently whittled 32,000 men in his army down to 300 
And God used it to save an entire nation from slavery and overruling by a foreign power. Jesus came as a baby and obediently submitted himself to the will of the Father, and God used him to save the entire world. God takes things that are small and apparently insignificant in the world's eyes and uses them to be far, far more reaching, if that's a sentence, far reaching than we originally think. If you even take the Bible, the Bible is a book that's written over thousands or hundreds of years by multiple different people, none of whom at the time, when they wrote those sentences down, had any concept whatsoever how far-reaching those words would be, how many lives would be changed, how many people would be saved, how many lives would be transformed by reading the words that they just obediently wrote down. So the question for you this morning is what has God put in front of you that is apparently small and insignificant that he can and will use to be far-reaching in your life and in other people's lives? Because these people had no concept at all of what God would do through the small things that they did. There's a story in the Bible Um, which is probably the most famous example of this, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And the basic concept of this story is large groups of people come and listen to Jesus. They get hungry. Nobody has any food for them. Boy brings lunch. Jesus takes lunch, multiplies it massively, and feeds 5,000 people. Okay, Something small that is then magnified. But we're going to have a look at that specifically because it's a brilliant picture of what it is to be far-reaching. So Matthew 14, verses 14 to 18, says this. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We've only got five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. Let's just go back to that first slide if we can, Jess. This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Right? The disciples identified the problem. We have no problem identifying the problem, do we? As a general rule, I can look at the world around me, and I can clearly see what the problem is. Actually, I should probably clarify. I can look at the world around me, and I can clearly see what somebody else's problem is. I'm really good at diagnosing somebody else's problems. My own problems, I don't tend to like to focus on those too much, but somebody else, I can tell you exactly what needs to be done. I've sat in rooms with people talking about politics recently, and everybody, don't worry, I'm not going to dwell on it, everybody that you talk to knows how to solve this problem. Everybody knows what the problem is and what needs to be done about it. Although, We've probably got about 500 different possible solutions and different possible problems that need to be solved, depending on the perspective of the person that is having that conversation. But as a general rule, as people, we we can identify what the problem is. The question is, when we identify what the problem is, what do we expect to happen? So the disciples say, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. People are hungry. They need some food. Okay, what's the solution? Right, let's send them somewhere else. Let's make it somebody else's problem. Let's expect somebody else to solve this issue. Because actually, if I have to take responsibility for all of these people, I'm not being funny, 
I'm going to get a little bit overwhelmed and I've got too much on and I need to focus on getting myself fed at this moment in time because it's a remote place and I'm quite hungry at this moment because I've been listening to Jesus all day as well. So let's send them somewhere else. What does Jesus say? They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus is a realist, right? He knows that the disciples don't have the capacity to fulfill that request. But he tells them to anyway. Why? Because he's trying to teach them something, not about who they are, but about who he is. So they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So what do we have? What are the resources? We've got two loaves, five loaves and two fish, five loaves and two fish. Next slide, Jess. Five, five loaves and two fish. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. I always get those two wrong way around. What's the answer? What have you got? Bring it here to me. Some of you and some of us have problems in our lives. That actually we haven't got a problem identifying. We know what the problem is. But we often expect a different solution than the one that God asks for. Sometimes what God asks for is actually, right, so what do you have? Okay, bring that to me and let me do something miraculous with that. So first question for you, what do you have that God can use? Because we know that God can take the little that we have and do great things with it, but we have to do our bit first. And the second question is, are you ready to do your bit? I've got a, a couple of friends at work who are having a baby at the moment. Uh, their husband and wife team, they work together in the same office, which is brave enough as it is. Um, but they're about to have a baby. And there's a recurrent conversation that is going around in the office, which is, uh, so you ready yet? It's a really annoying question, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever had a baby, but um, it is one of those questions. It's like when you're about to get married. People will always, about three, well, three, four months before you get married, people will always ask the question of, is everything ready? You're sorted? Got the dress? Got the... It's the same with having a baby. It's generally a case of, are you ready? And the general answer is, no, of course we're not ready. For most people, if it's your first child, certainly this has been my experience, if it's your first child, yeah, probably you feel a little bit prepared because you put a lot of effort into your first child. Um, <laughs> preparing for the birth of your first child. You put, a lot of, you put a lot of effort into all your children. It's really important. But you put a lot of effort into that because you're excited and you're excited about all the others too. But you've, you've got other children to think about when it's your second or third child. It all gets a bit complicated. But for the first one, you're pretty much ready. Second or third one, eh, it'll be all right. It's fine. We'll get there eventually. But there is genuinely so much to get ready for when you have a baby. I didn't realize this. I didn't realize, for example, and if you've never had a baby, you may not know this either. If you have a baby in hospital, they will not let you leave the hospital unless you've got a car seat to put that baby in. I didn't know that. Now, it's sensible to have a car seat to put your baby in. But I didn't know it was an essential requirement for being able to leave the room, which apparently it is. You, need, you also you need to have a hat so you're expected to bring your own clothes for the child and, and bring a hat. And it sounds like a stupid thing because some of you are sitting there going, yeah, well, that's obvious. I didn't know these things. So the question of are you prepared, sometimes we have to try and think about things that we didn't think about before because we're changing the way that we think about the situation. And that is assuming that you know that you're having a baby. 
Did you know that there are people who have babies who don't even know that they're pregnant? Some people in the room are going, no, that's not a real thing, surely. It's a real, genuine thing. I've met a few people in that sort of situation, and some other people working in healthcare will have, will have done that as well. It's a weird concept, because they have no idea that they're pregnant, and then suddenly it's like, ta-da! Here's a child. And they have no preparation for it whatsoever. And trust me, you've never seen shell-shocked until you've seen somebody who's just delivered a baby that they didn't even know they were pregnant with. And sometimes I wonder if that's what God does, is actually he prepares something for us. He puts somebody into our lives that we need to help, we need to nurture, we need to help grow, we need to invest in, but we're not prepared in any way, shape, or form because we didn't even know we were pregnant. Okay, Psalm 78 which Ben referenced this morning, which is fantastic. Psalm 78 says this. He will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. The Bible is full of imagery. And when it talks about generations of people, sometimes it is talking about physical generations. But actually there is meaning behind these words talking about the generations of believers, people who will follow Jesus. And it talks about new birth, about being born again. That these are the next generation of people who are due to be born again into a world where they are suddenly in relationship with Jesus, not just on their own. And so God is bringing people into our lives that we can nurture and help to grow in their faith. My question is, do you know that you're pregnant? Don't take that out of context. Because actually God is placing people in your life for you to nurture, for you to come alongside, for you to develop, for you to bless, for you to bring forward. Are you ready for that? Is the bag packed? Is the room painted? Have you got a hat? Have you got a car seat? Have you got all the stuff that you're going to need? Because if you don't, he's still going to bring people. You're just not going to be as prepared. Things that we can do, we can actively prepare for God's salvation. We can actively prepare for people to come into this place and be saved. And if we do that, then they will have a better start in their Christian life and in their Christian faith. They will still come to salvation. They will still come to be saved because God saves people. Jesus saves people. It's Jesus' responsibility to save people. It is our job to nurture and to bless them. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But give reverence, honor in your hearts to the anointed one and treat him as the holy master of your lives. And if anyone asks about the hope living within you, always be ready to explain your faith. Explain your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Matthew 25 tells this parable, which is a bit of a weird parable, if we're honest, but it's a parable about 10 bridesmaids waiting for the wedding to happen, waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. Five of them are prepared. Five of them are not. And the ones who are not, the wedding still happens, but the ones who are not get left out. 
are you prepared and are you ready? There's this passage at the end that says this, Matthew 25, 13. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour. Some translations say the hour of my return, of when Jesus is going to come in that moment. The baby's coming. Are you ready? So let's have a look at a passage that we're going to kind of circle back to with a few more points over the course of this um, morning. Matthew 28 is pretty much the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's, it's worth saying everything in terms of this book, this book, the Gospel of Matthew, is building up to this point. It's like if you had a climax, you had a cliffhanger, you have a moment right at the end, this is what it's building up to. Matthew 28, verses 14, 16 to 20, is this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus told them to go to. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Credits roll. Okay, this, that's the end of the book. That is the, that is the cliffhanger. That is what it's building up to. Now, it's worth saying, up until this point, the general attitude of the disciples have been looking forward to Jesus coming and saving the world. There is a cultural build-up to this of the Messiah coming. The Messiah will save us. The Messiah will put everything right. The Messiah will rid us of the Romans. The Messiah, the Messiah will get rid of all of the negative experiences within our world and bring positivity and life and joy and love and peace and hope and that's good and it's like Jesus gets to that point and says right okay we're there here's what you're gonna do sorry what what we're gonna do yeah what what you're gonna do and you can almost imagine this internal dialogue because it does say that some doubted you can imagine this internal dialogue going on about Jesus I'm not sure if you understand how this works but you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, you are meant to come and save us. We have been saved, thank you very much. That's it, mission accomplished, that's good. As Jesus says, a common misconception, right? You're under the impression that this is some sort of beneficence thing that actually I'm coming to give to you and that you're here to receive only and then that's, that's the way that this relationship works. Actually, this is a partnership. And yes, I have come to seek and save the lost but you need to do your bit. So we're going to look at three things from this passage that we need to do to be far-reaching or to become equipped to be far-reaching because we are all called to be far-reaching. And it's like at this point, Jesus says, okay, I've come. I've demonstrated to you how this works. Now it's your turn. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried doing anything with children in terms of activities that you actually care about. And by care about, I mean things like cooking, DIY. Um, I had an experience where we painted one of the boys' bedrooms a little while ago, and I thought it would be nice to get them involved in the process. Um, I'm not, not an absolute maniac. It was just the white paint on the wall underneath the colour. You know, we're not going to trust them with blue paint. That's just crazy talk. But I had this moment where, as a father, and I've got two children, one is 10, one is 7 now, um, and they were needing to paint the walls. And I had this moment where I was trying to explain to them how to do it. And it went something like, 
right, okay, here's what you've got to do. You need to take, take the paintbrush and just note, watch. Watch what I'm doing. Right, just note, watch, stop talking, watch. Just, just watch for a second. Very gently, just go, are you watching? Can you watch, please? I'm not going to do this. Right, fine. Okay, so very gently. Along, if you don't watch and you get it wrong, it's your fault. So we're going to watch all the way. And it kind of went on like this for about five minutes. But very gently, we're doing edging, very or cutting in. So t I know, I know. <laughs> but would you trust a seven-year-old with a roller? I'm just, it's, it's a dilemma. So, and then you get to the point where I've done the demonstration. Okay, now it's your turn. Not like that. And you have that moment of absolute terror of what are they going to do if I give them this brush. And sometimes I wonder whether God feels a little bit like that. <laughs> just kind of look, just just watch. What watch what look, read in the book. I've given you the manual. Read in the book. Look at how I just no, stop playing on your phone. Look, this is how to do it. Just And the weird thing is, he's already said, it's your turn. And we don't read the book. Certainly not as much as we should. But there's a moment of God handing over the responsibility, not of salvation, because he seeks, he saves, okay? But of bringing people to Jesus. What do you have? Who do you have? Who has God placed in your life that Jesus says, bring them to me? It's your turn. Utterly exasperating and terrifying, but it's your turn. So first thing that we can do, first part of this verse, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's where it starts, with all authority in heaven and on earth with him. We have to climb higher. The disciples go to the mountain that Jesus told them about. They have to climb higher. When you climb higher, you gain a new perspective. But by climb higher, what I mean is recognize the authority and power of God in your life and invest in growing closer to him. Read the manual. Look at what he's doing. First step, recognize who is in charge, who is in control, who knows best, who can tell you how to do it. Okay? We need more of God. We need more understanding of who he is. And that means more investment in relationship. Relationships that work take investment. If you don't invest in a relationship, it falls apart. You need to invest in your relationship with God. There's a, a book in the Bible called Haggai, which I think is how you pronounce that. Haggai, cha Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, says this. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Does anyone feel like life is like that sometimes? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, how are you living your life? Go up into the mountains, climb higher, and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Because of you, that happened. Because you didn't build my house. If you want to be successful in life, if you want to be far-reaching, if you want the words that you speak to bear fruit, if when you feel like you're giving out and giving out and giving out and getting nothing back, one possible explanation is you need to build the house of the Lord first and foremost. Now, this is Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, it was about the temple. It was about a physical building in a physical location. New Testament, which is what we're living in now, the new covenant, that temple, that house of the Lord is in here, is in your heart. So how is your heart with God? How is your relationship with God? Have you built that relationship with God up? Because if you don't, you may expect much, but get a little. You may sow a lot, but harvest little. And that's a real frustrating way to live. We've got to climb higher. Throughout the, temp- throughout the Bible, the temple was a symbol of God's interaction with man. It was the seat of relationship. You need to have a solid relationship with God to be far-reaching. And we already covered that in rooted, being rooted and grounded in your relationship with God. But it goes into, feeds into your ability to how far you can reach. How big is your God? Do you understand that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him? And we mean all authority. God has the ability to do whatever he likes, to change whatever he likes, to bless where he wants to bless and to withhold when he wants to withhold. All authority in heaven and on earth rests with him. So we need to invest in our relationship with God. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Second one, climb higher. Second one, look further. Expand your circle of vision. And by that, I mean look beyond your immediate circumstances. What does it mean to be far-reaching? Are we talking far-reaching in terms of lots and lots of people? Are we talking far-reaching in time? Do we want the things that we do today to matter in 20, 30, 40 years' time? Are we talking far-reaching in geography? Do you want to reach people further out in the world? When we talk about far-reaching, it's one of those broad umbrella terms that can mean a number of different things. But if your perspective is always here, that's as far as you're going to reach. So anyway, here, use Google Maps. Okay, Google, Google Maps all the time. Google Maps has this thing where you, um, when you open it, it pinpoints your location. You get the little blue dot that is you. And then you've got a circle around that little blue dot that essentially is how accurate is that location. But if you think of you as a little blue dot, think of that little radius around you. How wide is your circle of influence? How wide is your circle of perspective? How far are you looking and are you considering? Has anyone come talking about apps? Has anyone come across an app called the Three Words app or Which Three Words? Is anyone not familiar with Which Three Words? Okay. Which Three Words is fascinating because it basically is a concept where a guy has divided the entire world 
up into three meter by three meter squares and allocated each square in the entire world, I'm presuming he's got a computer to do this, he didn't do it by hand, but allocated each square a random three words to pinpoint that location. That's on the basis that actually things like longitude and latitude, the vast majority of us don't understand. I don't understand longitude and latitude, and it becomes very difficult to find places. It originated out of a desire to make sure that the postman arrived at his house instead of in the field next door, because he lived out in the country and his postcode always took sat-navs to somewhere random in the middle of a field. So he originated this idea, but it's been adopted by emergency services to try and find people out in the middle of nowhere, because if you can pinpoint your location to a three meter by three meter square, then it makes life a lot easier. But what you get is a random collection of three words. So right here on this stage, right now, I am in, Spices, fork, hotel. Okay. If I move three meters that way, I am in going actors free. It's quite. There's hours of entertainment in this app, right? But what it does is it pinpoints where you are. And here's my question: Where are you? Three words. Where are you? For some of us, that can be in deep trouble. Certainly my children know what that feels like on occasion. For some of us, it is dry and weary. For some of us, it is longing for more. But I always find it fascinating, and I, I found it fascinating this week, just looking at how many times God speaks in three words. Let there be. Three words. Where are you, Elijah? Grace is sufficient. God is love. God so loved. It is finished. Faith, hope, love. Where are you? Are you dry and weary? Or are you in a place of faith, hope, and love? Are you in a place where God is love? Do you recognize that God so loved the world? And think about the far-reaching language that is involved in that. God so loved the world. Yes, he so loved me. And that includes every single person in this room. But he so loved the world. His perspective is so much larger than the three words that I'm focused on right here and now. But he's willing to meet us where we're at. Romans 8, 18 to 28, if you want to talk about a passage that has far-reaching language. All right, Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, not you, not the person next to you, not 300 people, but the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Do you know that you're pregnant? Right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What are you hoping for this morning? Is it for something here? Or is it for something much broader, much more far-reaching? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Do you like the way that relieves a load of pressure? Actually, it's okay not to know what to pray for. If I ask you what is your far-reaching vision and you think, I don't really know, that's okay. Pray. And pray in the Spirit because God's Spirit is far more far-reaching than you will ever be. But he can use you to pray for people that you don't even know exist. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We need to climb higher. We need to look further. You know, if you don't know what to pray for, allow the Spirit to intercede for you on your behalf. But do something. Go. Move. Make an effort. Talk to someone. Make friends. Do what God has put in front of you and trust him to take that specific small thing and multiply it and magnify it up into something that is far-reaching. If you're still not sure where to start or what the right thing is to do, Philippians 4, 8 to 9 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, that covers quite a lot of options there, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. If you don't know where to start, start with this list. Whatever is noble, right, pure, trustworthy, think about those things. And do those things. And God will be with you. God will use you to be more far-reaching than you think. Every single person that we talked about in the Bible, and every single person who wrote the Bible, God used to be far more far-reaching than they ever imagined. The same can be true of you. God will use you to be far-reaching, to reach those around you, if you do something. And you bring him what little you have. We've got to climb higher, look further. Last one. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Third one is shout louder expose the passion that is in your heart. Passion is a weird thing to talk about because people tend to associate passion with shouting and I've put shout louder up on the screen. But actually we're not talking about shouting, we're not talking about singing, we're not talking about a particular expression, we're talking about passion. Passion is an unrestrained expression of the truth of what is in your heart. That is it. And that looks different for every single person. So you may not be a person who shouts. You may not be a person who sings. You can still be passionate. You can still demonstrate that passion. 
you can still use the metaphor of shouting louder, even if it doesn't mean it's physically shouting louder. But Jesus says, go to all nations. You're not going to reach all nations by keeping the passion on the inside. You have to bring it to Jesus to allow him to do that. You're designed to stand out. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 is a really famous verse. says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are designed to stand out. This is about being generous with what you have. You put the light on the stand and let it shine out for everybody. Don't keep what you have to yourself. Give it out to those around you. It's about being generous with what little I have, I'm willing to bless somebody else. Allowing God to work through you. Philippians 2, 12 to 16 says, Therefore, dear friends, As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That is a direct quote from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says those phrases, warped and crooked generation, to Joshua right at the moment when he is taking over leadership and going into the promised land. The fact that Paul has come back to them in Philippians is not an accident. He knows who he's writing to, he knows who is reading it, and he knows his Bible. He's using that phrase that Moses spoke to the people of Israel at the moment when they were about to stop wandering around aimlessly in the desert and start to take hold of the promises of God by going into the promised land. Yes, to tell people that they need to do something. Yes, to tell people that they were designed to stand out, but also to remind them of their place in the bigger picture of what God is doing. That God is taking people from a place of wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, in dryness, in desperation, in thirst, and bringing them to a place of promise, to a place of, of a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place where he will bless them. And it's at that turning point that we are called to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation, to take people from that place whatever three words they happen to be wrapped up in at that moment in time, into a place where God is love, into a place where God will bless them. That's what it means to shout louder. It's not about volume. It's not about how you express your passion. It's the fact that your passion is there and that you are expressing it without restraint because that, if your passion is for Jesus, that will point people to Jesus. You will shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation as you hold out the word of life to people. We need to climb higher. You have to go deeper in your relationship with God because you can't go out there and neglect in here. 
you need to look further beyond your circumstances. And we need to shout louder. That's an unrestrained expression of the passion that is in your heart. How you choose to do that is entirely up to you. But express it. And that little that you bring, God will magnify into a way of reaching far and wide. As God's overall plan is far-reaching. So what's in your heart? What are your loaves and fish? Are you prepared? Are you ready? It's your turn. Have you watched the demonstration? Have you read the manual? Do you know what you need to do? But then whatever stage that is at, do something. Do what God has placed in front of you. What has got God got in your hand? Because ultimately, you're not on your own. Jesus' last words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So whether you feel adequate or not is not the point. Whether you feel ready or not is not the point. Jesus is with you always. So do something. This week, practically, let's not leave this place and not do anything about it. What can you do for the people that you encounter this week that will demonstrate the passion for Jesus that is in your heart? What can you do to reach those people around you? Climb higher, look further, and shout louder.